Also this morning, I, I've been asked to, to say a few words uh, about my teacher, um, Lumpo Cha. And um, many, many of my teachers, my um, friends, colleagues, my own students um, are asked to, to speak on this topic. And often the talks revolve around inspiring anecdotes and um, entertaining stories. So I, I may end up telling a few of these stories myself. But th the first point I would like to make is that living with a teacher, um, those kinds of memorable um, anecdotes are the exception rather than the rule and that on a daily basis um, it's the example of the teacher, the presence of the teacher that um, is more is more effect, uh, affects one's life much more so um, when uh, when I arrived in in Wapapong in 1978, I'd already spent a range retreat with Lumpur Sumato in England, uh, wearing white, keeping eight precepts, and <coughs> and so I'd heard a lot about um, Ajahn Chah, and I'd never I was never interested in being a bhikkhu in, in the West. Uh, for me, I, it was very important that I should be a bhikkhu in a Buddhist society and, in, uh, and to be able to live the traditional um, life of a forest monk. And I was, of course, very drawn to uh, Ajahn Chah. Now, when I arrived in the monastery, it was um, on a full moon then in December, and the the monks had just um, completed the uposatha, and Ajahn Chah was sitting underneath his his kuti on his on his wicker chair, talking with some of the monks and and a Western monk who um, uh, met me when I arrived took me to pay my respects to to Ajahn Chah, and. Um, when I arrived, he introduced me. He said I was disciple, or so I've been studying with Ajahn Sumedho, and now would, um, I would like to be trained here and, and become a disciple of, of, of Ajahn Chah. And he was drinking um, um, some honey drink, <coughs> and uh, and he, he held it out, and for me, and so I. I crawled across in front of all these monks and took this drink back to my corner, and and that was it. I mean, no, I, I was uh, never <laughs> never looked back. You know. So, my uh, the thing that that really um, changed my life that that first uh, on that first day uh, was faith. Rather, it wasn't a. You know, a matter of a great teaching, and I, I don't, I can't remember him saying anything, or at least not nothing was translated for me that stuck in my mind. Um, 
but what happened was that I just developed this deep faith that Ajahn Chah was an Arahant. Now, to give a little bit of background, um, I, I left home when I was 17 and traveled overland to India and spent a lot of time traveling around spiritual centers and monasteries in India. And I developed a, a healthy, I should say, a healthy skepticism about spiritual leaders and had seen um, what I felt were, were abuses of authority in a number of places. Um, and a lot of um, hero worship and um, um, delusion in in many area, in, in many places that I'd been. So I was a little bit cynical, um, and so it was you know, wonderful to meet Lumpur Sumato to begin with, um, and to be so impressed by him. But to to meet Ajahn Chah. Um, this was the first time I'd sensed this. This um, is somebody who is unlike anybody I've ever met before. And, and I tried um, some years later to, to try to articulate this. And the, the image that I came up with is if you'd lived in a world of plastic flowers, you'd only ever seen a plastic flower. And then one day, you see a real flower for the first time. That was how it felt. You know, <coughs> um, if, you'd ever, if you'd only ever um, heard people singing out of tune, and you didn't know what singing in tune was like, then you heard a great opera singer singing. Oh, that's what singing's supposed to be like. You know? So this idea that he wasn't, he wasn't special um, or it's just that um, he was like normal and everybody else is abnormal in some kind <laughs> of a way and he never really knew what abnormality meant or artificiality meant until you meet someone who's completely free of those things um, so being around somebody like that um, means that you're, you're very much aware you know, of your own defilements. And I think the, the value of it is that you feel this urgency about practice because there's a constant reminder um, that this practice does have a result. And one of the things that Ajahn Chah was um, very particular about um, was in revealing to his students the fact that as a young monk he had many problems and difficulties and that he didn't start off in, uh, in any special um, way. He wasn't, you know, um, sometimes you read these hagiographies of great monks and it seems like they were perfect from when they were born and that everything just happened kind of completely naturally and normally. Um, but he he had to strive um, and to do a lot of work in his early years. And he wanted the monks and students to know that. You know, there's not this huge gap. Don't put me up on this pedestal. This is Ajahn Chah. You know, wow. You know, and, um, he doesn't want that from his students. What he wants of his students is, is more the idea, 
well, if he did it, then I can do it. Um, and that, um, and I think that for me is one of the inspiring things that, that I look for in a teacher, not someone who's, you know, who, who wants to create this sense of being very special. I'm up here and you're down there. But saying, look, I've followed a path of practice um, that you can follow too. And this is not beyond you, any of you, men or women, uh, monastic or lay. Um, it's, it's simply a matter of creating the causes and conditions for progress along the path. So um, most of the, the Westerners that arrived in, in Wat Bapong um, tended to be quite well educated in the conventional sense. Many had university degrees. I was one of the very few um, probably who didn't have a university degree. Never been to university. Um, and so we'd also um, read a lot. And uh, a lot of our problems weren't so much that we lacked basic um, awareness of Buddhist teachings. We had to learn a lot more of the, the cultural things. I mean, people had maybe studied Buddhist uh, teachings, even Abhidhamma, but didn't know how to bow properly. You know, this, uh, this was uh, sort of this socialization, acculturalization, adapting to climate and, and the physical difficulties of, of monastic life. Um, but for that reason, the, um, it wasn't that um, our lack of understanding of the language originally was, was felt to be such a major obstacle. Certainly, I didn't feel it although it did give me a real motivation to, to learn the language, and I, I did learn the language very quickly because um, very young, motivated. But um, it wasn't so much what Ajahn Chah said, the content of what he said. It was just who he was. And, and for me, um, before I left England, uh, Lumpur Sumedho had said to me, you know, don't look for the perfect place. Is it? Because I'd, basically I'd, um, I, I was inspired to come to Wapapong, but always there was this you know, nagging that, well, maybe I should look around a bit before I make this long-term commitment. And, and uh, Lumpur Smeda said, there's no perfect monastery. Um, and that was very wise advice. And arrived at uh, Wapapong, imagining it to be, you know, this, uh, you know, a forest monastery, the elite, the cream of the cream, you know, the, um, and expecting some kind of like spiritual kind of SAS or marine boot camp or something. And, and then I just look at some of the monks and some of the novices and say, what is he doing here? I mean, he, he has no, how can he, you know, how can he bear to be in the presence of a teacher and, and behave in that way, you know? What, what on earth? And, and of course, afterwards you find there, like a lot of teenage boys in those days, um, a lot of teenage novices. And in Thailand, if you have a, like a really naughty teenage son and you just don't know what to do with him, you pack him off to the monastery in those days. <laughs> so you had a lot of kind of naughty teenage novices um, and, and monks who were just there for just uh, ordaining as a way of making merit for their parents and just sort of hanging out and just trying to get through, you know, a certain period of time. So you had a core of monks um, who were really inspiring. And then you sort of an outer, um, 
outer number who are, who are not inspiring at all. But for me, that wasn't a problem because I felt this way of training was established by Ajahn Chah. And, and I just, for me, this was very, you know, being very, as I say, uh, reading a lot, thinking a lot. And, and for me, I just made a simple decision. If it's good enough for Ajahn Chah, it's good enough for me, you see. So if he thinks this is the best way for uh, the Sangha to live together and he sets things up in this way, well, okay, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt because um, I have that kind of confidence in him. So I, um, I observed many things um, even when I couldn't um, speak the language um, which impressed me and, and things that I learned uh, over the course of time, and particularly when you have comparisons with other monasteries. Like many, many monasteries, um, uh, often the Ajans who can seem to be, uh, you know, very kind of intimidating and all-powerful kind of kings or emperors, um, often find themselves under the thumb of certain lay supporters. Um, and many monks find themselves compromising on certain principles out of consideration of wealthy lay donors or getting to um, um, uh, to wrong kinds of relationship with lay people which uh, affect their, their practice and their teaching. And Ajahn Chah was exemplary in this, in, in terms of the, uh, the way in which he, he related to lay supporters, uh, whether they were wealthy or they were poorest um, villagers. There, there was this uh, compassion and evenness and fairness which was uh, most inspiring. The other thing is that um, on the level of, of Sila, um, his, the, the way he set up the monastery was there was an absolute separation of monks and nuns. So you could be, you could live at Wapapong for five years or ten years and never have a single conversation with a nun. That would be the norm, rather than the exception. There's just no, there's no context, no forum in which you would ever, uh, monks and nuns would ever speak with each other. Um, so we live in completely separate worlds. And so that meant that for, even to this day, uh, Wapapong has never been rocked by any of these uh, scandals um, of misbehavior between monks and nuns, and, and that's not a small thing at all. So um, he put great emphasis on, on sila as foundation of practice. And um, of the Dhamma talks that he gave on a daily basis or latterly on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, 70-80% um, at least um, of the teachings were sila-based rather than meditation-based. Um, and uh, the often the talks um, were not, it wasn't really, you didn't even really need to know what he was saying actually. Um, the, the point of it was that you were there. And uh, sometimes when you did, when you did understand, was just saying the same things he said a hundred times over and over and over again 
and uh, and he knew that you knew and um, <laughs> but the point was you had to sit there and be patient and he was teaching you patience you sit like I'd, I'd been meditating and sitting cross-legged um, a lot before I, I went to Thailand and then I met this new posture this this papier posture you know, this what is the polite posture and it's extremely strict in 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 for in at that time particularly um, that like if you're sitting like this you'd get rocket you know if you I mean I don't mind I'm not um, but uh, you can only sit like this three hours four hours five hours if if your teacher is teaching you have to be in this posture and it's really weird posture isn't it I mean it, it's kind of you know, it, it's it's kind of, you know, it doesn't feel natural. Um, so then you're switching from one side to the other, and and uh, and of course there's no electricity, so it's very hot, and it's very sticky climate. Um, and when you get hot and sticky, and you start to sweat, the mosquitoes come. So you're sitting there, you know, you think, you know, hour after hour, and, and you think, well, I wouldn't mind if it was some kind of high expiring dhamma, but it's just talking about keeping the toilets clean, or, <laughs> uh, in, you know, and you think, here we go again, you know, when you use the toilet, uh, you know, wash the floor and fill up the bucket afterwards, you know, and, but this was precisely, you know, the point. So, um, I, was, I was asked um, just now about... Uh, like the practice regarding tanha. So I, I, I would say that, that Ajahn Chah's teachings were, were you know, as, as most or all, um, I might say, all uh, good Buddhist teachers are based on the Four Noble Truths. But his, his particular way of teaching this wasn't so much, uh, of course, academic uh, as very practical. Um, and so he would, um, the, the kind of, the training, um, is referred to as toraman. So this this word toraman is used in uh, in in Thai language generally to mean torture uh, <laughs> or torment. Um, but and and uh, the first generation of, of Western monks um, really we didn't have access to much um, you know Thai language um, learning materials. And so most of the Western monks understood that, yeah, this is it, Ajahn Chah is torturing us or tormenting us. But actually I discovered in my own studies that this word toraman um, is, is a technical term. Um, so not used in modern Thai language very much, but refers to a way of training in which the teacher um, forces or, or encourages maybe um, the student to go against his desires. And so you, and the, the idea of it, the philosophy if you like, is that you expose the nature of desire or the nature of, of craving and you see for yourself that a relationship between craving and suffering and the abandonment of craving and suffering through uh, frustration of, of dunha. So you see dunha by frustrating dunha. So this would be a, like a major feature of, of our training. So you say, Ajahn Chah, so you want it hot. You, come, you haven't eaten for 24 hours and you come back and it's cold in winter time and you want something hot. So I'm going to make sure it's cold. <laughs> uh, 
Or you want it cold, I'm going to give it to you hot. Or you want it fast, I'm going to give it to you slow. You want it slow, I'm going to give it to you fast. So it's, it's not exactly sadism, but it's like, you, you know, the compassionate sadism perhaps. In the, um, but this, you see, this system of training only works if all the students have an absolute confidence in the compassion of the teacher. There's some monks who don't have that kind of authority and, and can't command that kind of trust from their students. Um, copy it. It doesn't work at all. People end up leaving. Um, because it, it, it's not a, you know, a universal kind of system. It's based on the relationships in the monastery and particularly um, the, 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 the trust in the teacher. So, so um, you know, for instance, we um, every uh, every one prat, which is uh, the full moon, dark moon, half moon, like once a week or so, um, then everyone would stay up all night and, and um, practice through the night. So, if you've been up, say, um, on the one prat morning, you, you you get up at 3 a.m. and then you have a long day and then you another all through the night, and then it's 5.30 in the morning, um, you go an arms round, which is, you know, can be as much as th five, six, seven, eight kilometer walk. So you come back and you can imagine, you know, all you want to do is have something to eat and go and have a, have a rest. Um, and so this would be the day where, you know, that's exactly what you wouldn't get to do. And, 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 uh, we, we sit in this uh, dining hall, and it's a long, thin, r narrow room with benches along either side, and Ajahn Chah sitting at the front, so he can see everybody, and you're aware he can see you at all the time. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, after the uh, arms round, you'd, you'd um, empty your bowl and send the food off to the kitchen to be prepared, and you sit meditation, but of course on the day after one prayer everybody's kind of sitting like this, you know, and, and then you look up at the clock and oh gee, and, 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 and then um, the food would come and the monks would give out the food and, and of course you don't have any choice at all over the food you're eating. Um, the monks, all the monks get up and they carry the, the big pots and they just go along the line like this. And everything's mixed up, you know, the rice and sweets and curries and things you like and things you don't like. You know, you come back, you have no idea at all what's <laughs> going to be. Uh, uh, and, and of course, everybody, you know, the, what you really fear um, are the compassionate monks. Because the compassionate monks, often they think that what they like, everybody else must like. It's kind of, <laughs> it's, it's obvious, this is really nice. So if they're in, they, they try to be the ones that carry the pot of the food that they like and they want to make everyone happy so they give everybody lots of, of what they like, you know, and, and forgetting that maybe other people don't like what they like. So you sometimes you get back and you have this ball of sticky rice and it's just, it just like the ball of sticky rice, the top of it just, uh, just emerging over like the curry is completely submerged in curry. And then you might get a sweet, and you take out your sweet, and it's, and it's paste with like fish sauce or something like this. So that, that's the kind of, th that was, um, and it, you know, okay, I, I mean, um, that sounds awful, but it's like anything, you get used to it. And it's, it's not awful for very long. Um, but um, 
And in fact, you can even sort of start to think, yeah, I actually kind of prefer eating like this, believe it or not. Um, but anyway, I, I remember one particular occasion where, where we'd given out the food, and then on a weekend, uh, there would be some lay donors who would um, sit and chat with Ajahn Chah while the food was being given out, and then afterwards. And then, and then he would um, end this conversation and signal to the monks that it was the time to give the blessing with a little cough. <coughs> So everybody is, you know, you're, you're just waiting for this little cough, you know. <laughs> When's the cough going to come? And what on earth is he talking about, you know? And then, and then, and then you'd hear, and you'd, see, you'd hear this cough. <coughs> so everybody is sort of, oh, at last, like this. <laughs> and then he start talking again, <laughs> and and you know that he's doing it on purpose, you know. <laughs> So um, I say it's not like sadism, but it, it's 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 just this constantly saying, well, what's the problem here? You know, wh what is the problem? Well, it's not Ajahn Chah's problem. Problem is, I want to get my, I want to eat right now, um, um, and and so you're seeing when this strong desire comes, what happens when I it's frustrated for one reason or another. So uh, when I w I, w I was. Um, given the job of, of um, writing the Ajahn Chah's official biography um, a few years before he passed away while he was still um, bedridden. And I, I, I conducted a lot of uh, interviews. And um, one of the interviews was with Lumpur Sumato. And I remember um, asking, you know, what... You know, what uh, just to talk about the things that inspired him or impressed him about Lumpur Chah. Um, and, and he gave an answer which I wasn't very pleased with. Um, he said, uh, Ajahn Chah uh, was a genius at creating uh, teaching situations. And at that time, I, I felt that wasn't giving Ajahn Chah due credit, um, that, that, that there was far more to it than that. But over the course of years, uh, I, I changed my mind and really appreciated what Ajahn Sumedha was pointing to. That this, um, the idea is that the student is um, ready to learn, has a capacity to learn, and the teacher is putting them in situations where you're being stimulated or you're being allowed to learn. And there's a real skill um, to that kind of choreography or that kind of... of um, ability to, to create um, uh, activities or a structure to, to life together as a community. And Ajahn Chah certainly was, um, I, I think, a genius at that. So if there were two, um, I, 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 I mentioned a little while ago, teaching based on four noble truths, um, but in terms of the practice, and the Eightfold Path, um, then the teaching which you know, he stressed over and over again was the threefold training and the fact that the, um, the three aspects of the conduct, the training of conduct, the training of the heart, and the training of wisdom um, are inseparably linked. Um, and it's not possible to um, take, say, like a meditation technique out of that um, context and pursue it 
um, um, without um, <coughs> developing in the other areas and expecting for any real transformation to take place. So um, right view mm, was stressed a lot, right understanding, which is in the, the wisdom degree. Um, because if we lack right understanding, then um, it's very difficult to keep the other elements of the, of the training on track. And there is um, uh, a sutta, in fact, that you, you may be familiar with, um, in which the Buddha is talking about the, 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 the wise person and the foolish person. Um, and the Buddha is, says that if you were to be um, pure in all your precepts, and on the basis of that purity, you were to look down upon someone who is not pure in, the, in those precepts, you're a fool. Mm. You're, in other words, your sila becomes tarnished um, whenever you use the purity of your precepts as a means of uh, elevating yourself above other people. So you can see that there's, there's a real subtlety with sila. It's not just a matter of you know the precepts, you keep the precepts, but it's your attitude to them and, and preventing yourself from creating this new kind of self, you know, the morally pure self, the one who's better than other people. And look at him, he doesn't keep the precepts, he doesn't do this. And, and I this is a real danger for Vinaya traditions, particularly for, for monks in... Uh, we put so much emphasis on, on uh, the monastic discipline that when you see monks who don't keep the monastic discipline, you really have to look after your mind. And you see, I think, oh, he's so sloppy, you know. You know so. um, and that, that is the, the temptation and the danger um, when you take anything seriously um, because you, you tend to disparage uh, those people who don't take it seriously. And, and the Buddha carries on this teaching. He says, if you, if you have really good samadhi, you have jhana, and then you look down on, on people who don't, you think you're superior. Look at me, I'm so peaceful. Look at him, he, every time he's in nodding and sort of, you know, I, I'm better than he is. Um, so that, though, using any kind, and so the Buddha goes through a number of um, different areas of spiritual life, um, in every case, saying, if on the basis of that attainment um, you create the sense of self as someone who's superior to others, who you're comparing with others, then you're a fool. Even outwardly you might be given uh, a great deal of praise as being a very wise person, but um, Buddha's eyes you're not. And so the uh, precepts um, have to be understood within the context of the threefold training and so the, um, the test of precepts is to what extent they remove the sense of um, uh, self-aversion, um, sense of guilt, um, to what extent they give rise to um, self-respect or what we would call self-esteem, um, to what extent they calm the mind, and to what extent they prepare the mind for meditation. So um, sila um, 
what what does what does sila mean in in daily life? Not just for monastics, but for for lay Buddhists. Um, there is tendency in, in many Buddhist communities to uh, to conflate the two and to think that um, precepts equals sila. And if you're keeping the precepts, you've got good sila. But sila is, is far richer term than that. Um, I was giving an example to someone yesterday that. Let's suppose uh, you know Mr. A has done some very uh, embarrassing, foolish things in the past that nobody else knows about and nobody else needs to know about. And you know that if these things were made public, it would be very, uh, very distressing for Mr. A. And then one day you get angry with Mr. A and you want to make his life a misery. So you announce to all your friends that you don't feel it's proper anymore to, to, dis to keep this very important information hidden. And you reveal this uh, embarrassing um, conduct of Mr. A. So do you break a precept? If, you're telling, if everything that you, you reveal is the truth as you, as you understand it, um, so I think if we're taking a kind of a legalistic view of a precept, we say, well, no, actually, you're not breaking a precept. But we can say you're breaking sila in that you are acting upon an unwholesome impulse um, through your speaking, your acting in a way um, intended to cause suffering to others. So, so sila is um, any kind of action or speech based upon craving or based upon an unwholesome mental state. And it's not something which is restricted to a legalistic interpretation of the five precepts, the eight precepts, or even the 227 precepts. So, so Ajahn Chah would be um, pointing again and again to, to self-view and a way, a way of teaching monks, again, would be uh, through worldly dhammas. So, for instance, he might uh, suddenly start praising somebody. And, and you, I mean, I remembered this. And I, said, why? I don't see that, that monk's particularly, you know, why is Lumpur praising him so much? Um, and then uh, suddenly Ajahn Chah would stop praising him. And just to see uh, how that monk would react. Um, so using this um, desire for praise and, and fear of blame um, as teaching tools. So he's saying everything. What does that do to your mind? Why does it do to your mind? Why am I suffering? What, what is the... And, and the point that he was making again and again, if there's any suffering in the mind, mental suffering, there has to be some craving there. It's not possible that you suffer merely because of the behavior or conduct of others or because of some external situation. Those things can be strong inducements to suffering, triggers to suffering, uh, highly likely that you will uh, make your life difficult in many ways. But as long as there's no craving in the mind, there's no subjective suffering. And so working back from that, Ajahn Chah said, are you suffering? He said, yeah. 
uh, and he'd ask Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedha, you've probably heard Ajahn Sumedha say this before, he said, is Wat Bapong suffering? <laughs> is, like, like Ajahn Sumedha is like, uh, just wants to meditate all the time and then he's, he's out in the afternoon sweeping leaves and you know you, sleep, you sweep these leaves through the forest and then the wind comes and they all come down again or you know, you know tomorrow it's going to be all, and, and so he's getting hot and sweaty and you know it's really physically uncomfortable and you're doing something that seems pointless you know so I could be meditating in my kuti instead of doing this and then Ajahn Chah that's a is Wapapong suffering? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's, so it's very simple, but it, it, it's right on the, on the spot, isn't it? Well, it, why are you suffering? You know, really, what, it, what is the, the, the fundamental cause of the suffering? Um, because if, if, we, if we look at physical pain, there's no difference, is there? If, if, um, if we were to uh, light a candle and... Um, uh, a completely unenlightened, foolish person was to put his hand in the candle flame, he would experience a pain. An arahant put a hand in the flame, he would experience pain. There's no difference in the physical dimension. Um, but in a situation where um, somebody was abused, um, treated with contempt, um, then an unenlightened person would experience a great deal of distress and an arahant would not. So what's the difference? You see that, there's that um, the mind of the person involved um, is always playing a crucial role, the crucial role in the arising of suffering. And this is what Ajahn Chah was constantly pointing to and encouraging us to look at again and again and again. Um, so he said he used to praise uh, monks who didn't come and ask him questions all the time. It's not that he, he wouldn't answer questions, but he would say, yeah, I really like it when, when monks just sit with their suffering a bit and really look at it and investigate it. No, it's not. So uh, monastic life um, you know, is, is designed by the Buddha to create optimum conditions for enlightenment. Um, it's as good as it gets, uh, but it's still incredibly difficult, even so. But the... Um, although many of the uh, conventions and protocols in, in monastic life um, are designed to, to calm and to um, avoid unnecessary conflict, there are also certain uh, practices which are meant to stir up the mind. So it's not that like stress-free environment is always the best thing. And um, the example, of course, would be um, the rules around food. Um, because for a monastic, it's not that you, even in a, a very kind of austere forest monastery, that um, when you go and live there, all the cravings disappear. But you, you severely restrict their expression to enable you to look at them more closely. So all the normal kind of sensual expressions um, are now... Uh, impossible. So, so where does the mind go? What are the, what are the outlets for monks or nuns? Food, conversation, and sleep. Those are the three things. But so, from a vast array of of things to to keep an eye on, um, it's not that you become a monk and now there's no no outlet. But you've restricted them to very specific areas, 
And so Ajahn Chah, the, the teaching that you'd hear again and again and again is eat little, sleep little, talk little, meditate a lot. Um, if that was any, that was Ajahn Chah, you know, the teaching you'd hear the most, it was that. Always keep an eye on these three areas. And, <coughs> and so, and I found as a, as a teacher also um, that um, Ajahn Chah's, um, uh, let me just, sorry, let me just um, go back a bit. I say, well, Ajahn Chah would often um, refuse to, to talk about psychic powers. This is one of his um, uh, characteristic um, stances on things. He, uh, almost everybody um, believed that he had psychic powers. I, I myself believed that he did. But I, I think that's not um, as important as the fact that he wouldn't talk about them and he wouldn't uh, tell stories about them. Uh, he wouldn't try to encourage people to take an interest in those things. So it, it was just like something that was just taken, taken for granted. But um, he, he did say, actually, you know, in, in, in teaching people, um, you don't need to use psychic powers. You know, I can just look at the way that somebody uh, puts down their bowl, lifts up their bowl, to the way that somebody walks, the way that someone speaks, um, that th all these things tell me so many things just from my experience of human beings and the human mind over such a long time. And when you have a, a large monastery, um, how do you keep tabs on all of your students? This was a big headache for me. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not comparing myself with Ajahn Chah, but did run you know, a large monastery. And, and I found that the schedule is one of the best teachers. Um, and this was, again, the genius of Ajahn Chah, using the schedule as a teacher. And one of the best early warning systems is someone's having a problem. So, I mean, men generally don't like to own up if they're having a hard time. You know, it's just kind of difficult for, for a man to say, whereas women really like it usually, you know. <laughs> And uh, it's sort of, I'm not trying to be sexist here, but some, uh, generally, you know, man has to kind of, how are you? Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm hanging in, you know. And um, so um, when you have a, um, a, very, a schedule where even if you, you get to sleep as early as you can, it's, you're not going to get more than five hours sleep at night and you're up at three o'clock in the morning. So if the bell goes at three o'clock in the morning and uh, go to the morning chanting, and as an Ajahn you see um, there's somebody who's not coming out in the morning, that's a really good indication. Uh, not that he's, you know, he's a bad monk or something, but this monk probably has some, some trouble. Um, and does he come out for the sweeping in the afternoon? And so keeping to the schedule um, is a very simple and effective way of seeing um, to what extent people are basically on board and, and uh, um, are, are really committed to this training. And so, you know, there may be good reasons that someone's uh, not feeling very well and they didn't like to tell anybody and so on. So you're not drawing conclusions from it, but it, it is um, a way that um, the, the schedule and the structure of the monastic um, routine 
um, helps uh, the monks to uh, sort things, uh, to know what's going on, the senior monks. And um, so Ajahn Chah would, um, would use this a lot and putting monks in challenging situations. Um, one, of the w one of the things I was interested in when I was uh, writing the, the Thai biography was um, in examining the, the similarities and differences between the way that Ajahn Chah set up his monastery and the way that other disciples of Ajahn Man set up their monasteries. Um, now, um, unfortunately, in, in most forest monasteries, once the Ajahn dies, then everybody leaves. And there are these huge monasteries with chedis and, <laughs> and places for 50, 60, 70 monks. You live with just two or three monks, so just like a, um, a skeleton crew of, of monks. Um, and this is the common pattern. And uh, this has not occurred at Wapapong. And my, my analysis of this is that, that in most monasteries, it's like a pyramid. And you have the, the abbot on top, and the abbot is like the king. So it's a model of the abbot as king. Everything, whatever he says, goes. And everybody is, is their, their, their vision is towards the apex of the pyramid, towards the Ajahn. Their whole life revolves around the Ajahn. Um, and that's, uh, so what happens when the Ajahn's not there anymore? Well, there's no reason to hang around. You look for another pyramid and another Ajahn that you can look up to. Now, what was very interesting, inspiring to me, is the way that Ajahn, Ajahn Chah set up his Sangha. Um, firstly, he expanded the, or emphasized, the practice of, of service. So as a young novice, young monk, uh, you're assigned a senior monk. And, and at that stage when the whole Sangha was much younger, um, if you were a novice, it might be a monk of just five years, six years standing. And um, you take, carry their bowl on arms round, bring it back, wash their robes for them, sweep around their kuti for them. As they get more senior, then the number of duties increases. But, but th there's a constant um, a movement. You maybe spend a couple of weeks serving this monk and then a couple of weeks serving that monk. And so um, over the course of a year, you, you spend time um, serving various monks um, throughout the monastery. And of course, um, it's you get to know them personally. You get a chance to speak with them in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And, and some of them you really like and you get on with and you create friendships and associations that last throughout your monastic career. So uh, in Wapapong, you've just got this incredible kind of web of relationships um, between younger monks and more senior monks and between monks of different generations. And so this is um, cementing this, this sense of community um, which is not solely dependent upon the abbot. And then Ajahn Chah would also uh, had a policy of, of opening branch monasteries throughout the country, which it, it wasn't he, he set out to set, uh, to set up branch monasteries, but there would be invitations from villagers. We have a forest outside 
our village and we would love to have monks come and live here or monks themselves after cutting off all ties with their family for five, ten years would often go back um, now really um, solidly established as a bhikkhu um, to find some place to live close to home so that their parents and their sisters and brothers and, and friends can come to a monastery and this is a way of propagating the Dhamma. So many forest monasteries you'll often find the abbot's mother and sisters and nuns there, um, the, the, the local people who come every day, often family members. So this is a very common kind of pattern in, in the northeast Thailand. So this is the way the number of branch monasteries increased and then Ajahn Chah would be sending monks off to uh, go. Uh, and the other, another thing is complete unpredictability of your life, complete insecurity. You can just um, be going along one morning um, to uh, clean Ajahn Chah's floor or something like this and he says, uh, go and clean up your kuti, you're going to Chiang Mai for a year or something like that. <laughs> um, you've got half an hour. Uh, and, and this was that's how I was brought up. You know, you just don't know. You have no idea. You're just out of the blue, you could be sent off somewhere, and and you think, wow, I'm just so fortunate living with Ajahn Chah and seeing him every day. And then he says to you know, come back next year, and you're not going to see him for, for. And this was very common, particularly if he if um, monks were particularly devoted to him, personally, he would do that a lot. And again, I find this very inspiring that he wasn't a monk who wanted this kind of um, devoted body, um, sort of entourage of yes men or yes monks and yes nuns and, and, and people who are just looking, oh, Lumpur, you're so wonderful all the time. Um, because th this does happen, doesn't it, with spiritual teachers? They have this kind of live in this bubble of devoted supporters who think they're wonderful and whatever they do must be right because. Um, they are enlightened. Um, and he didn't encourage that at all. In fact, quite the contrary. He would send people away. And, and, and you never had any kind of, oh, now I'm really part of the inner, you know, the inner group of the special disciples. You know, he, he, he didn't want that. He didn't want that kind of jealousy and the politics and the, the pettiness that often surrounds great great men, great women of any, of any kind. So he had this kind of, uh, a lot of real worldly wisdom um, which um, accompanied his spiritual wisdom, um, which was very impressive, I, I found. So he, <coughs> um, he set up this system where uh, monks were going off and give, being given responsibility from quite young age, monks having to give Dhamma talks and public talks um, from you know from quite early time and uh, and taking responsibility for building monasteries and for uh, all, all the different um, jobs and tasks so monks in the Wapapong got a very full uh, kind of education you know if there's time for chanting and ceremonies you can do that time to build a Dhamma hall and be, be bricklayers and engineers and can do that. Uh, it's a time for meditation, you can do that. And so he, he was able to create an institution um, that could outlive him. And great kind of prescience and long-term planning 
which is it was just generally speaking absent in in our monastic tradition. So it's a very um, special um, quality that that he had. So, of course, you know, with a arahant and someone who's fully realized enlightenment, you say, well, well, who was he? You know, what was his personality? And and everybody has their own ajahn Chah. And um, when the Westerners started to go, they had their own. You know, he's more, like, to my view, he's more like a doctor. You know, you see, the Westerners tend to be very up in their head, very opinionated, very critical. Uh, kind of people took them take themselves very seriously, um, and so um, his humorous side came out a lot with the with the Westerners. He very funny, and uh, it enabled the Westerners to laugh at themselves and not take themselves so seriously. Um, but when he was speaking with the Thai monks, it was often very different, um, a lot more formal, and and sometimes. Um, Time monks would get a little bit jealous, you know. It's kind of, yeah, we want some of that, you know, sitting and, and joking. But but then if they're in that position, they just you know, it's just it's a just taboo, you know, to 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 behave that way. And um, so, you know, for many of the Western monks would think, well, yeah, Lumpur, you know, when Lumpur's with the Thai monks, you know, he has to fulfill that whole role of of the Thai ajahn, you know, which is expected of him in the culture and society in which he lives. But when he's with us, he can really just relax and just be himself. You know, that's, that's the kind of idea. And then the Thai monks think, you know, yeah, when Lumpur's with the Farang, with the Westerners, you know, he really has to put all this charm and all this stuff on, you know, because it really works with them, you know, but that's not who he really is. Uh, just when he's with us, that's the real, you know. So, so everyone has this idea, you know, that they have this, um, they, they know who the real Ajahn Chah is, and of course nobody knew, and, um, and Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedho um, recounts times where, you know, he'd just uh, be sitting there and just uh, suddenly there was nobody there, and he said that was the most impressive thing, you know, not the teachings that he gave, just the sense that all this, the various personas of the kind, the, the generous, the wise, the, the funny, the fierce, that these were these were things that he adopted um, as uh, as the occasion and the circumstance demanded, and yet uh, himself there was nothing there at all. You, know, you could just see a complete absence. So that you know, for many people that may be not inspiring, but for a meditator that that's uh, that is extremely inspiring. And, uh, I remember I, w I was. Uh, sitting there once and a, uh, a Western monk ordained as a Korean Zen tradition came and of course he has this whole idea of uh, you know a Zen monk and you you know you're kind of a little bit aggressive and and, and uh, you ask difficult questions and that's that's kind of what being a Zen monk means and um, <laughs> and so <laughs> um, you know, say, saying uh, outrageous things, and um, so an Ajahn child just sat there, and he, and he gave all these really good answers. You know, short, pithy answers, like one sentence, like answers. Wow, you know. And then um, afterwards, one of the, one of the monks said, "Lumpo," he said, "Oh, you, you're just like a Zen master," and and he said, "No, I'm I'm just like Lumpo. I'm just like myself." Uh, 
you know, this is the way I'm, I am right now. So, so that sense of absolute stability and dependability and trustworthiness, absolute, unshakable, and at the same time complete unpredictability um, and uh, untrustworthiness in the sense <laughs> that you, you, you never knew what he was going to, to do or to say. Or, you, know, um, you could never take him for granted. You know, the time one monk was telling me that um, in the 60s, when it was kind of smaller sangha, and a, a lot of the monks would come round in the evening, and in those days the monks all used to smoke, and, and maybe pe people would come and give um, Ajahn Chah cigarettes. So this was a kind of a treat in the evening. He'd give out cigarettes to all the monks. You have a, like a smoke, and, and that's not the Ajahn Chah you remember, is it? And um, he, and they they gave up smoking in late 60s. Um, uh, and Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedho to this day is still a bit, <laughs> he says, they all blamed me. They thought it was because I came that everyone stopped. In fact, it wasn't. Um, so, but at this day, they, they, they were also, and then they have a little bit, you know, as, as a teacher, you have this really kind of gung-ho periods, but you can't just be gung-ho all the time. You also have this real time, a little bit kind of relaxation, a bit of chat, and just um, normal kind of relaxation. And so uh, Ajahn Chah started off, and they were talking, and then everybody, everybody got into it. And, and of course, the monks, um, after a while, they, they get a little bit kind of exuberant and joking and laughing. Um, and then suddenly, you know, without announcing it, Ajahn Chah just sort of goes into samadhi like this. <laughs> Although just very, very still, very, this sort of nothingness. And it, you probably can imagine it's a bit like a movie, you know, where, where somebody notices and then they stop and then somebody else notices and then they stop, you know, just until this looks like one or two people just <laughs> you know, it's like this. <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, there's, hey, what's going on? And they look around and, 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 and so th this was a way that he would teach, you know, sort of, okay, creating that condition where you feel very relaxed and having a good time and chatting with your friends and, um, and, and then suddenly, you know, but yes, you can relax, but you still have to be mindful, you know, or you, you still have to be alert. Um, and you do little things like this. When, if we go out, if you go out into the sun, um, you know, forest monks would never use an umbrella or any kind of covering for their head. But there is, you can, if you're in, not in a public place, but you can fold up your sitting cloth and put your sitting cloth on your head. It's not very practical because if there's a wind, it blows off, but, but it's better than nothing. And, and so Ajahn Chah would take monks walking and have, his, have this thing on his head and then very quietly he would just take it off. And you see, if the Ajahn has something on his head, you can have something on his head. But if the Ajahn doesn't, you cannot. So the moment he takes it off, if you're right there, you immediately take those off. If you're just lost in daydreams, you won't. And he's noticing, he's observing that. If the Ajahn's wearing his shoes, you can wear shoes. If the Ajahn takes his shoes off, you can't. Um, so there are so many, um, so many of these um, rules of discipline that can be that he uses as, as training, um, just to keep people on their toes and taking nothing for granted. So I've been speaking for about an hour now. I'm going to uh, could speak all day probably. But I, so. Um, uh, so you haven't had so many kind of Ajahn Chah stories, and um, there is one story that I like a lot. 
and um, he um, had a uh, Uposita Hall built in the mid-70s, and it was quite unusual, not the traditional uh, monastic design for an Uposita Hall, very modern-looking. Um, <coughs> some of you may have been to Wapapong and seen it. But anyway, after it was, uh, and the monks did a lot of work on this, but the, most of the concrete work, I think, was, was done by hired work. I'm not sure, because it was a year before I arrived. Anyway, um, when guests came, he would often take them for a little tour and, sh and show them around. And um, on one of these tours, uh, it was just a, a year or so after the boat had been built, and uh, already there were cracks appearing in the concrete. And one of his guests pointed out to this crack and said, what a shame, you know, the building only, uh, only completed about a year and uh, there's a big crack over there. And, and so Ajahn Chaya said, no cracks, no Buddhism. You know. <laughs> yeah. So that's the story. And I, I but uh, I like it because, you know, just think about what, it, what he's saying and just the, the kind of sharpness of mind that is right there like that. Yeah, well, if there was no cracks, and that, that means nothing ever gets old, nothing ever gets it, well, that, would that be, you know, the kind of world you'd want to live in? And that's part of it, isn't it? Uh, things crack and things decay and things change, and, and uh, how, how do you deal with that? <coughs> so I, I, I feel um, very fortunate that um, I was able to um, take um, uh, to take Upasampada, to become a monk with Ajahn Chah as my preceptor. And uh, we're, I'm very proud also that we, we four of us, we took Upasampada together in 1980. And all four of us are still here today in, in robes. And that's quite unusual for, um, for like groups and generations of bhikkhus. So there's... Um, Ajahn Yanadamo, who's now the abbot of what Ratanawan in uh, in Korat, same province as I live. And there's myself, and there's Ajahn Mujiro, who's the abbot of our branch monastery in Portugal. Ajahn Kimanando, who was living in a hermitage in Melbourne, but has now been living in Ratanawan with Ajahn Yanadamo and Lumpur Sumedho for the past year or two. So, uh, you know, we, we feel uh, incredible gratitude, but also it's, um, it's wonderful that uh, we also have this kind of occasion in which we can share just a few reflections and, and thoughts and, and to um, inspire you all a little bit with the great figure of, of Ajahn Chah, um, because um, he was the proof of the pudding. You know, I mean, if you don't, he's the proof that um, this path to enlightenment um, is still valid, it's still practical in this day and age. And it's not something that was perhaps possible in the time of the Buddha, but, uh, but these days we don't have the barami, we don't have the conditions to be able to follow this path to its conclusion. And 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 I think it's 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 his presence and his that he proved through his life and his um, the the impeccable way that he lived his monk's life and the number of people that he was able to inspire that um, 
that it's it's wonderful that we can um, can learn from him um, right now. Even though he's passed away, then some of his disciples are trying in this very small way to to carry on his work. And um, and I know that all of you are finding have read his books and maybe even heard his voice and uh, hope that you can gain more and more benefit and happiness from following his teachings and examples in the future. Right, uh, we'll now open the floor for uh, questions. One or two questions, just one. Good afternoon, Ajahn. Um, just now you mentioned that uh, Ajahn Chah men mentioned uh, is, is what Papong suffering. I didn't quite catch uh, the context of that statement. Um, yes, uh, sorry if I wasn't clear enough. Uh, Ajahn Sumito was, was uh, a young monk, and before he'd gone to Wat Papong, his first year or years were spent in a more or less solitary practice and um, doing a lot of formal meditation, hours of formal meditation every day. And he, he, he realized that there was something missing in, in his monk's life. And so he, um, in terms of the full life of a bhikkhu, you know, it's not Jesus kind of like a full-time meditator in a hut. And he felt there was more to being a bhikkhu than that. And so he... Uh, he went to Ubon and met Ajahn Chah and he felt that, yes, this is the full monastic training um, and this is what he wanted to commit himself to. But at the same time, he found it very frustrating having lived in that way of spending so many hours a day meditating that he was uh, being required to sit for many hours a day listening to talks about things he didn't understand or sweeping leaves in the heat um, and, and far in excess of what he felt in his idea was, was necessary. So he was getting very negative about Wapapong and the choices he'd made. And then Ajahn Chah said to him, so is Wapapong suffering? I mean, is your suffering because of Wapapong or because of the situation? And, and, and then allowing him to sit and, and con contemplate it and realizing, no, it's because of my attitude and because of what I'm, um, and all the things that I, um, I don't like or I would like it to be otherwise. So all the kinds of craving and all the views and the opinions become clear to him at that moment through those words of Ajahn Chah. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Ajahn. Thanks, for a great talk. Maybe, Ajahn, can you say to us, like, from the beginning, how the first you are interested in Buddhism and also when you decided to walk to the pathway of monkhood. Oh, this is Ajahn Chah morning, not Ajahn Jayasara morning. So <laughs> we have, we have uh, Ajahn Chah question is better. My life's not so interesting as Ajahn Chah's. <laughs> Ajahn, this is Ajahn Chah's question. 
you, you, you mentioned that uh, your comment that when you went to his monastery and you look at him and he was normal and, and the rest of the people are below normal. Mm. And also, I mean, uh, by, by implication, there are also very people who are not normal, not very normal. So, so my question is that the the whole process of Buddhism is to try and make people normal, and but but the approach seems to be very passive. There's no, uh, I don't know whether I'm, I'm right or not. So, it 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 works on examples and, and no no active bringing people to be normal. So I might I want to you to comment on whether this is the right approach, whether uh, Buddhist fellowship is. Uh, Active or passive, and which approach is better? Uh, I'm I'm not sure I, I quite understand your uh, understanding of the words active and passive. Uh, how would you characterize activity? Okay. Active and means passivity? like evangelism, you know. I don't think Buddhism is to into evangelism. So evangelism would be passive, positive. I mean, active, and, and not evangelizing would be uh, passive. That, that's that's my meaning. Of yeah, I, I wouldn't characterize that as activity and passivity. I mean, you can evangelize yourself if you like, um, but um, I, I think the, the very fact that, that Buddhism is not evangelistic is one of the um, main attractions for, for people uh, from, from my culture and from, from original culture and Western culture. Um, but I think it, it, it points to the very heart of Buddhism in that most um, belief systems um, are, are through their very structure, the very the basis, um, always are faced with the problem of us and them. You have to have we who believe and they who don't believe. And then you, you have a dilemma. Well, if, if heaven or um, you know, whatever the goal might be can only be achieved through belief in certain dogmas, and that anyone who doesn't believe in those dogmas, even if they lead a good life, and be kind people, and, and, and so on, and they, at the end of their life, they can't go to heaven. So what's your moral responsibility? Is it, uh, should you try to persuade, evangelize? To what, ex to what degree would forcing somebody to change their religion be valid, um, given the um, the rewards after death. So th th this dilemma, you know, has um, been fundamental to you know religious life um, throughout most parts of the world for a very long time. But in in Buddhism, uh, we consider faith and belief um, as an indriya, as a spiritual faculty. Um, it's just one element of our life as a Buddhist. And in fact, the Buddha made it very clear that faith must always be governed by the wisdom faculty because faith is a two-edged sword that um, without wisdom, faith can either become superstition or else fanaticism. So faith is not like the more faith you have, the better. It has to be grounded within uh, this overall right view and understanding. So in Buddhism, it's not what you believe, and, and, and you can't justify um, cruel actions through belief. Um, but in Buddhism, it's what you do. How, how do you behave? How do you conduct yourself? 
to the people around you, your family and your community? How do you speak? What kind of speech do you have? And how do you use your mind? So for a Buddhist, there's, no, there's not that same kind of us and them dilemma because you say, oh, he's a Muslim or he's an atheist or he's a Zoroastrian, uh, but he's very honest and kind and compassionate person. Um, how it likes to help other people, then we know, well, all, as far as we're concerned, those are all um, qualities that will lead to a favorable rebirth. Um, so we can anumotana and say we appreciate that. So it's not, because we're not putting, it's not a matter of faith in dogma that determines what happens in, in uh, after death, but the good qualities in our heart. We can recognize and appreciate good qualities wherever they appear, in people who are religious or not religious at all. Um, it's, it's the quality of action, speech, and mind, which, um, so in that case, why, why would we want to evangelize somebody? It's like Dalai Lama is considered the most um, inspiring person because he encourages people to develop goodness within, within the context of their own religious tradition. And as Buddhists, we, we we can appreciate that. As Buddhists, we can say, you know, by the way, we do have some very good practical techniques to help you to do that. You, we're free, you know, we don't have any copyright on these if you're interested to learn. But uh, as a Buddhist monk, uh, I'm forbidden from teaching anybody who doesn't expressly request teaching. So I, I can't go up to somebody and say, have you heard the good news about Buddhism? <laughs> or, or, uh, you know, or <laughs> um, no, I can't knock on somebody's door and give them one of my books or something like that. Um, but th that, that's, a, you know, that's a minor rule of training, but it has a huge effect. Um, but what, what can I do? Well, I can dress like this. Um, and when people see me, like particularly these days in the West, people come up and say, oh, you're a Buddhist monk? I'm really interested in meditation or something. And then if somebody comes up with a genuine interest, then you can, then you can speak with them, to them. And that's, that's a kind of evangelism without when the, the, uh, the first, it must be initiated by someone who's interested in learning. But then out of kindness and compassion, you share what you know. And uh, I think that's one of the beautiful things about Buddhism. And uh, you know, I wouldn't uh, characterize it as, as being a passive approach and somehow inferior to a, an active approach. And um, you know, the, uh, I, I really, uh, I mean, I've grown up feeling a lot of um, um, aversion to evangelists and people trying to impose their ideas and values on other people. I mean, I, I, I see it very, um, harmful and, and um, a dangerous kind of attitude to, to life. And I mean, look at, you know, the, the <coughs> Europeans, European culture, you know, going to any country, we're the civilized ones, they're uncivilized, and we've got to teach them, you know, how to be like us. You know, this sort of the classic arrogance of Western culture. Um, and, you know, I, I rejected that from when, from when I was a child, you know, I just couldn't, uh, couldn't take All right. Um, well, what we can, what we have to do now is um, because uh, Ajahn's been here for three days and he's got the next talk at two o'clock. Uh, let us all uh, express our two one o'clock. Okay, you all can stay till one o'clock.
Uh, Joanne can take some more questions. Just a minute, sister. One minute. <laughs> Ajahn, you mentioned that um, you believe that Ajahn Chah was an Arahant and that he had psychic powers. Did you have uh, some experiences with him that made you think so? Yes, uh, the point that I made was certainly on that first day, um, when that like unshakable belief, I didn't have any means of estimating what his, uh, I mean, it was just a feeling that arose and has never left me since then, that confidence in him. But that, that's, that is, the, you know, faith is a circumscribed role in Buddhism, and as I say, it's, it, it needs to be governed by wisdom, but it's not to denigrate it. And um, in, in early years of monastic life, where it's very tough, you know, often what keeps you going is not your knowledge of the suttas or the, you know, the profound teachings, and, but it's that simple confidence that what you're doing is valuable and legitimate and, and has true meaning. Um, and for me, that was that confidence and willingness to bear with the difficulties uh, was really because of who Ajahn Chah was rather than any particular teaching he gave. But having said that, you know, I, I made a point the other uh, day, other day that um, when I was researching his his biography, I asked people, "What what was it? You know, was there any kind of special teaching that he gave? You know, that you'll never forget?" And everybody would say, "Yes." Oh, wow! This is just incredible. You know, and and you say, "Well, yeah." And I was I was just suffering so much about about something you know and i just didn't know what to do i was at the end of my tether i even thought about killing myself and i went to see ajahn char and i told him and he said um everything changes you know or it's <laughs> it, it's impermanent uh, or you know it's not sure um and so again and again i found uh, you know just a real genuine emotion but if i was to write that down as a story or retell it as an anecdote. People say, well, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they can't see why that. Um, it's similarly, you know, in, in the sutta sometimes you say the Buddha taught and then just a very simple teaching and, and people realize stream entry. So why was stream entry so easy in those days? You know, just that teaching, it's like sort of kindergarten Buddhism, you know. <laughs> um, but it's like it's who it, it's, it's who it is. And it's the relationship between the student and the teacher. And, and I often, teaching school teachers, and people I'm saying, you know, you teach who you are, you teach what you are. Um, and it's not so much the content, you know, it, it's that sense that the person who listens really feels that's coming from direct experience, not from a book. And then it goes straight to your heart. And simple teachings that you've heard a hundred times before, suddenly it's like you heard it for the first time. And, and that would happen again and again with Ajahn Shah. It wasn't that he, he was always coming out with these incredibly wise things that nobody heard before. Often the things that you'd heard so many times before. But it was like, it was, you felt like it was the first, oh, now I know what that means, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I had that, that faith in him. And, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I, I had direct experience of any psychic powers. I, when I was writing this biography, um, now I'm writing English biography, so be, next year you'll be able to read it, I hope, if everything goes well. 
Um, so it's quite a different book from the Thai biography. But um, I, my, I, I asked myself, how many psychic power stories do I want to put in his biography? Um, and my observation was that if you put psychic power stories into books, um, they're very divisive. People who like psychic power books just go, wow, fantastic. <laughs> you know, they just love it. And then people who don't like psychic power books don't want to read any more of the book. You know, um, so it's, it inspires people who are already inspired, but it doesn't inspire people who are not yet inspired. Um, so my policy and, and it was to say that um, certainly everybody believed that Jenchar had psychic powers, and of all the stories uh, of his psychic powers, undoubtedly um, some of them are just uh, the imagination and the belief of the, uh, of, of the person who tells the story. Just um, You see this over and over again. Something has quite an ordinary explanation and people just assume it's something really special. So, uh, I mean, uh, um, lottery numbers, example. Because <laughs> a lot of people in Northeast Thailand go to listen to Dhamma um, poor people in order to get a number. And maybe not only for that, but they hope that's kind of bonus. So you have to be very careful when you give Dhamma talks, you say like four noble truths, eightfold paths. And we <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, really, somebody. Uh, and even if, you're, even if you're, n you're really careful, maybe they're counting like how many minutes, 29 minutes, or two and nine, they always find a way of getting a number. So, so if you've got a couple of hundred people uh, or maybe, say, a hundred people get a number from your talk. You only need one out of a hundred to get the right number. And Or oh, Ajahn Chai Saro, he gave me the number, he gave me the number for my lottery. <laughs> uh, and you, you, get up, you get a kind of a reputation for this. Um, so this is a simple example of... Uh, because it's, it's often believed that all meditation monks have the power to predict, accurately predict... Um, lottery numbers <laughs> and some do they do um, but but um, if you um, and so if a monk has true compassion you know then he'll find some way of telling people without breaking the discipline and so the idea is the monk will kind of smuggle it into a Dhamma talk so that so that if you're listening very carefully you can get the hint <laughs> See? Uh, yeah, and it's um, so. Um, yeah, so I went through. I've been through periods where people say, "I hear you give very good numbers," you know, and, it's, uh, and so it's not true. So the point being that that um, people who have the faith are ready to interpret things in the lines with their their faith. And if you really believe that a teacher has psychic powers, then sooner or later you'll probably find some evidence for it, whether or not it really exists. So. Uh, you know, I'm ready to, to admit that some of the stories of Ajahn Chah might, might fit into that category. So I tried to put myself in a position of someone who's totally cynical and, and really has no faith and, and try to, ex you know, to twist something, say, well, yeah, it could be this or it could be that. So I said that um, although many stories may well be dismissed on those grounds, um, there are some stories which is very difficult to 
um, to dismiss in that way. And so I can just give one or two as an example. No, not you know, really um, incredible things. There's a story of a monk told me that, um, I have to give you a bit of background. In, the, in those days, when we go on arms round, um, usually just mainly sticky rice, okay? Maybe you get a few other things, but it's mainly sticky rice. So when you get back to the monastery, you can make your sticky rice ball, okay? And then everything else you tip out and goes to the kitchen. So it's a big thing, you know, how big your sticky rice ball should be. Yes. And so you, you, over a period of time, you get some kind of idea. You make your sticky rice ball like this. And um, so this was a period where um, there was a lot of work in the monastery. And this monk had um, been spent the whole time coming back from Armstrong thinking, maybe I've finally reached the time where I need to increase the size of my sticky rice ball because we're working so hard, I'm getting tired, I'm feeling hungry in the morning. And so um, um, as he approached the monastery, Ajahn Chah came out on a short arms round. Just in, and, and so Ajahn Chah said to him, oh, so you're going to make a bigger sticky rice ball now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I can't see how, how you could explain that in terms of some kind of wishful thinking or, or you know, some kind of... Um, faith um, on the part of the uh, on the part of that monk because he just started to think about that on the arms round he never spoke about it with anybody else that Ajahn Chah could have heard it second hand or third hand um, so uh, so this was my policy is saying yeah I'm willing to ag agree that there's so many psychic stories and some of them just sound just a little bit and then there's a second time, and then there's a third. I, I'm a little bit cynical about second time and third time stories, you know, because they're a bit too much like, you know, in, in storybooks. But um, there are a number of occasions, like the one that I just mentioned, where you can't explain them away uh, so easily. Uh, Ajahn, I'd like to ask, um, uh, during the last few years of Ajahn Chah's life, he was very sick. Mm. Uh, could you maybe tell us how he used his sickness to teach uh, people about uh, Buddhism and what was his uh, state of mind when he was uh, going through uh, his, uh, his sickness? Well, that, that can only be speculation. Can, can, um, the only... Um, there were um, monks, great monks, who would go and, and sit in meditation by the side of his bed sometimes. And I, I was there on one such occasion where Lumpur Put, who was one of his friends and colleagues and disciple of Ajahn, Chah, Ajahn Man, came out afterwards. And, of course, we all wanted to know. And he said, he's been sitting there. And, 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 and he said, well, Ajahn Chah's mind is like the full moon in an empty sky. That's so, you know, and this is so powerful. If you see him, you know, you you see this 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 man bedridden, paralyzed, um, and but this is the point that, that you can't draw conclusions from what you can see with your with your eye. In terms of what was he teaching, then again, I I don't think he he was intending to teach anything. And I think if he if he could have um, spent the last ten years of his life. Uh, walking around and teaching, he would have preferred it. It wasn't a choice that he made. Um, he had diabetes, um, and that diabetes led to kind of rapid onset dementia. 
um, and uh, severe brain damage. So the one of the neurologists said that his brain scan, 60-year-old man, was like that of a 90-year-old man. Um, but, uh, you know, there were um, silver lining to the cloud in that um, as a Sangha, we we took him back, we brought him back from the hospital expecting him to live not more than a few months and wanting him to pass away in the monastery or in a hospital. And he ended up living for 10 years. And um, so we had a, a, we set up a nursing team um, which would change every two weeks. And so there would be five monks during the day, four monks, uh, five monks and a novice during the day, five monks and a novice at night, and there would be a, a male nurse from the hospital would come in the evening. So there were never less than five attendants. There was never less than two or three people by his bedside for the whole of that 10 years. And often people were just sitting, meditating, and being quiet. You wouldn't speak loudly, be very... Um, and, and so monks would come from the branch monasteries and would take it in turns nursing. So it was another factor in this um, real sense of harmony and brotherhood and community in the Wapapong Sangha, which um, developed to a, to a further degree through the, the shared nursing of, of the teacher over, over a long time. Many of the monks learned basic geriatric nursing, which stands the Sangha in good stead for looking after all the other monks as, as, they, get, as they get older. Um, also uh, gave a, um, a chance for Wapapong and the to, to gradually uh, affect a, a transition from monastery where Ajahn Chah was very much you know, the, uh, in charge um, to uh, finding other ways of running our affairs and, and dealing with problems in the Sangha. So I, I don't think these were things that he, was he, he taught us, but these were things that we learnt. Uh, yeah. One more question. Somewhere. Hang on. Where's the mic, brother? Okay. Yeah, medallions, yeah. yeah. You know, well, um, I think, well, first of all, Ajahn Chah was one of the very few monks, even in the forest tradition, um, that uh, was actively opposed to medallions. And sometimes um, people would um, make these medallions without asking his permission and offer them to him. and. And in most cases, they were buried or they were... And just occasionally, um, he would keep a few and give them away. To, but they, they were, uh, in every case, um, produced without his 
his ascent and then he was given a certain number of them. And so uh, the, the ones that are around uh, with Ajahn Chahs, right, then, then they tend to be from the, the, that batch of, of, of ones that were um, taken from, apart from the ones that were um, buried under the Oposita Hall or, or whatever. But this is one of the um, key um, regulations and, and of, of Wat Papong not to um, produce these kinds of medallions. Um, the Buddha medallions, uh, you know, have long been a part of, of Buddhist culture. And um, ideally, the idea is that they are a reminder in daily life. You have a Buddha and you, you remember that and it helps you to be more mindful in your behavior and your conduct. But the, the, the Prakriyang and, the, and these um, medallions with monks on them and, and various, you know, have become big business. Uh, and these days, the, you know, you, although you can come up with some reasonable, um, you know, rationale for, for owning one, or for, but it's very difficult to, to um, deny the fact that now they're big business, they're bought and they're sold, and, and, um, and people's, oh, I've got this one, it's, it, you can sell this for 100,000, or that one is 200,000, and it becomes a very worldly activity. And um, and it's spreading everywhere. In, in uh, I recently in in China and uh, people in Shanghai are telling me that um, many Chinese people are now trying to get Thai medallions and buying and selling. So it's it's this kind of spiritual materialism that appeals to so many people. <coughs> so out of compassion for us, uh, Ajahn just said to me that uh, he'll carry on for a couple of mo few more minutes. So we'll take one question from there. Go ahead. Um, Ajahn Saro, if there's one thing that has kept you the last maybe 40 years uh, in your robes, what would that be? Um, yeah, there's not just one thing, there's, there's lots right. of things, but, uh, well, I, yes. Can, can I just say yes, that? Yeah. Um, you've told us that Ajahn Chah was a normal person. He mm. wasn't someone extraordinary. He was very ordinary. And yet, your first impression of him or the first time you saw him, you, there was that immediate rapport with him. And subsequently, obviously, his life is something that was special and consolidated whatever impression you had of him mm. because he was ordinary. Ordinary yeah. in the, in the yeah. sense maybe that he lived the precepts. And we are not ordinary yeah. because we may profess to have the precept but we don't lift them. And the thing that you said that impressed me was that many of his Dharma talks were based on sila. Mm. And he was living his precepts. I, is that something that has sustained you through the years? Obviously, it's not the stories yeah. about his psychic powers, ne neither anything no. to do with the medallion. Mm. Kept you. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
yeah, first of all, sometimes I, 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 I'm guilty of thinking in Thai and translating into English. And, and, and we have this, uh, the word in Thai is like pokati, you know, and, and it's not exactly ordinary, but it's, it's um, uh, lacking any kind of artificiality or any kind of um, forceness, you know, absolutely authentic. Um, and, and so the sense that everyone uh, suddenly realizing that that characterizes almost everyone else, this, this slight kind of uh, off-tune, inauthentic um, uh, sense of uh, lack of that pokati. So I, I have to st stay with pokati for a while. Um, yes, well, well I, I did refuse to, to, to speak about myself just now, but to, to give a little bit of background, my... The first question that came up in my mind that really led me on this whole, whole path as a teenager was, what is the best way to live? That was my original question. It, and, and from that, is, there, is it possible to make some distinction and say, this is a good way to live, this is a bad way to live, is this is the better way, this is the best, is it even a, a valid question to ask? Um, and so this, this really led me into the search that um, culminated in discovery of Buddhism. And so the, uh, basically the answer that, that, um, that I came to was that um, this is also bound up with why is the world such an unjust and, and cruel um, and difficult place for, for so many uh, members of the human race and does it have to be like that? And what if, if it doesn't have to be so full of suffering and injustice, then what responsibility does an individual have to try to make things better? These are the kind of very moral-based questions that really led me into study of Buddhism. Um, so I, um, in short, I, I, my answer was that the practice to um, eliminate defilement and to develop the Eightfold Path and develop wisdom and compassion and then sharing the knowledge of how to do that with others would be the, the template for my life. So I wasn't yet aware of the possibility of becoming a monk. But when that became my, my, my basic direction in life, then uh, in my studies and I came to realize that um, the Buddha um, had created the institution of monastic order precisely for people with this kind of um, ideal and um, and so I, I took to monastic life really like a fish to water I mean I, I just never wanted to do anything else um, because for me it, it is expresses the best possible way that a human being can live in in this world so um, you know, whatever the difficulties, and, and there's always whatever, you know, there's going to be difficulties as, unless you're an arahant, but in terms of the potential, both for my own happiness and welfare and to maximize the happiness and welfare that I can, that I can give to the world, it seems the form of a monk is, is the best that I can see and always have felt that way. Um, and so having Ajahn Chah there is uh, is the exemplar of that, and I like the proof of that is is uh, you know right from the start you know really strengthened me in that in that perception right from the first day.
Sorry, there is just one thing I would add to that. I, I talked a little bit about my travels in India and, and um, exposure to other forms of Buddhism and, and to Hinduism, and, and I felt that uh, the, the, the main weakness um, in so many of those systems was uh, an idea that an enlightened being is beyond all conventional morality and shouldn't be expected to keep all the rules of conventional morality and shouldn't be criticized um, if he does not conform to those rules. And so in, uh, and you know, there are very wise people and very sophisticated arguments to support that position. But in practice, what I see is constant abuse by teachers, particularly of their female disciples and uh, misuse of funds, misuse of power, and all uh, justified by the fact that, oh, you know, you don't really understand that they're beyond all this and you're just superimposing your worldly ideas on, on them. And what I found really refreshing in this school of Buddhism was the fact that there are no exceptions and that Ajahn Chah or uh, uh, Arahant keeps every single rule of discipline that a monk who's been ordained just for one day. There's, there's no sense of uh, special exceptions because you don't need to do that anymore. You don't have any defilements. Don't you know? Don't make things difficult, unnecessarily difficult. And so there's a solidity to it and a trustworthiness uh, uh, of the teachers that they have absolutely no justification for um, or, or ways in which um, they can explain away misconduct. Um, and I think that's very important, um, for, again, the, from the SILA level and creating the right kind of relationship between teachers and students. And, um, and then, although, you know, Theravada is not, you know, is the PR is not that this is the compassionate school of Buddhism, but, but then we have this example going right back to the time of the Buddha where Mahakasapa, who was the great uh, ascetic uh, Arahant, was requested by the Buddha himself to go easy on a few of these practices. Now, now he's an old man. And he, asked, he requested permission to carry on, um, not for himself, uh, but for as a good example to future generations. And, and this, this is the way this tradition works. You know, when you think, after a while, you, know, you feel a little bit more comfortable and there's not so much defilement you maybe think I don't really need to do this anymore I don't really need to do that anymore you know it doesn't it doesn't really upset my mind or disturb my mind and then you think well Ajahn Man or Ajahn Chah he's way uh, you know superior he still kept all these rules so so how could I possibly say that that I don't need to so that that's how that that that's passed down from Ajahn Man to Ajahn Chah to myself to my students and then do Ajahn Chah believe in Abhidhamma? <laughs> does he believe in Abhidhamma? Do you mean does he believe it exists or uh, does he believe there is such a thing? I'm, I'm sure he's aware that there's such a thing. Um, what can I say? He, he was not a student of Abhidhamma. <laughs> um, do you want to hear my opinion about Abhidhamma? Yes? Okay. <laughs> um, well, for me, one of the telling points is that of all the works that's been done on comparison between different traditions and the, the, the scripts and of um, recensions of the canon, 
that uh, the, the, the Dhamma and the Vinaya of all the different, in all the different languages, all the different recensions, is almost identical, which seems to strongly suggest a common source. The Abhidhamma of every tradition differs uh, in quite considerably, which would seem to me to suggest um, that it's um, uh, been written and been devised by monks after, generally after the Buddha's um, demise. And I think that's quite reasonable that that should be the case because the Buddha didn't teach systematically as such. He was ta taught in an ad hoc manner. I meet you today and he, he sees what you really need to hear and he teaches you that. He meets somebody else and teaches them. So it's not according to a textbook. But then after the Buddha passes away, how do you, how do, without the Buddha, how do you maintain the purity of this and how do you pass it on without it becoming distorted? So the monks are going through all the suttas and they're trying to um, um, devise patterns and principles um, which can then be systematized and passed on to future generations. But in that, um, in that effort, then there's always a certain amount of judgment and individual um, uh, preference and so on that comes to play. But, but you can see after the Buddha's passed away, then, then members of other sects say, oh, okay, you're, you're a di disciple of the Buddha, and Buddha says everything arises and passes away. Well, how, how do you explain memory? If something passes away, then, then how can you remember it? What is the mechanism for that? So all these kinds of questions from people from other traditions uh, you know, needed somebody to be able to come up with, this is the Buddhist position. So uh, I, I I, it's inevitable that Abhidhamma um, appeared, and I, and I think there are certain elements of Abhidhamma um, that I appreciate. But there are also, um, I, I don't have the same kind of faith in it because I think, well, yeah, the, Pali, the Theravada Abhidhamma is like this, Savastavada Abhidhamma is like that, and I don't have that same kind of confidence, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a Theravada, I should follow the Theravada Abhidhamma. Uh, I, I am um, much more committed to the Sutta and the Vinaya, um, and recognize also that uh, we can only really understand the Sutra and the Vinaya through the commentaries, because it's a dead language. And there's so many things, there's just no way we can understand without commentarial explanation. But at the same time, those commentaries are also very affected by, uh, influenced by Abhidhamma. So um, I don't have a like unreserved uh, appreciation for commentaries, but I, do s but I also see there's an awful lot in commentaries that I'm very, very grateful for. So um, yeah, I don't have a sort of a overall I believe or I don't believe, but um, I, I don't have the same level of confidence in Theravada Abhidhamma that I do in the, in the Sutta or the Vinaya text. Yeah. Okay, we'll take one last, just one last question. <laughs> uh, is Ajata supportive having of having a Bhikkhuni monastery? I think so. Is supportive of a Bhikkhuni monastery? Uh, did he have a bhikkhuni monastery? No, he had. Uh, well, it w uh, the bhikkhuni, um, the efforts to revive bhikkhuni order uh, really only um, um, became visible and 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 uh, talked about in the last ten years or so. So uh, when Ajahn Chah was still alive, um, it wasn't even a topic. You know, we we all 
in those days, like the bhikkhunis were hundreds of years in the past, and, and it wasn't even a topic of discussion in, in, in Wapapong in the old days. So we have this um, Meshi order. Um, it was the, um, you know, when Buddhism came to Southeast Asia, the bhikkhuni order had already um, disappeared. So in countries like Thailand, you don't have like perception of like golden age, you know, of, uh, well when there were bhikkhus and bhikkhunis together, because the, the the memory, the cultural memory of Buddhism, is always the primarily being propagated by bhikkhus. But in so this is one of the reasons why people don't get kind of emotional about it very much in Thailand in the same way. They might have some intellectual opinion, but it's not like a, an emotional issue because people don't have that kind of oh, we've lost this wonderful part of our tradition because it had already been lost before it came to Thailand in the first place. But um, the um, in throughout Southeast Asia, you know, there have been um, efforts to create something to replace as far as possible the bhikkhuni order to give uh, women with a uh, monastic vocation the opportunity to live monastic life. And in Thailand, it take the form of, of Mechi. And, you know, until very recently, that was kind of, well, this is, this is how we do things. This is our agreement. And, of course, now there's a lot of changes and uh, different opinions and more scholarship. And so um, it's hard to say what Ajahn Chah would, would think about it these days. But I in a sense, as, as a member of Wapapong, then we're part of the Thai Sangha. And so, you know, we are morally... Um, required to um, keep the standards of, of uh, our elders and of our tradition. So some you know, monks have individual opinions, uh, which vary quite a lot. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is part of voluntarily joining an organization that you abide by its standards and regulations. And if you can't, then you, then you leave and do something else. And, uh, Right. Um, we have had uh, Ajahn Jaya Saro in Singapore for the last three days. Let us express uh, Anumodana for the generosity and the compassion in his teachings with three loud sadhus. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. We also like to take the opportunity uh, that we collectively as a community in Singapore to express and request for forgiveness from uh, Tanajan Jaya Saro. Invite um, Bravara and Brayap. 